What's up, queens? Welcome to the Female Dating Strategy Podcast, the meanest female-only podcast on the internet. I'm Ro. And I'm Savannah. Today, we're going to talk about the absolute firestorm around Harry and Meghan in response to their Netflix documentary that dropped the past two weeks on December 8th and the 15th. We'll talk about both their love story and the narrative that they're trying to spin and then the response from the wider media and how incredibly, insanely misogynist and or racist it is. Yeah. So it was released in two parts. So we had three episodes one week, the final three in the next, the following week. And the first three episodes really focused on the beginning of their relationship. So, so how they met. They were actually quite interesting episodes to watch from an FDS perspective because there were positives and negatives that we'll get into just now about how their courtship went. So it started when like Harry was, he came across, I think it was a video of like Megan on a friend's Instagram. He was basically scrolling her Instagram and he was like, oh wow, who's that lady? And then I guess their friend linked them up. So that was how he first came across Megan, which is quite sweet, I think. Like, and this is why it's important to have friends in good places as well. Low key joking. But <laughs> uh, yeah, so Harry was late to their first date, which again, there were so many like yellow flags about what was to come with dealing with Harry and the royal family. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I like that she kind of called it out like, yeah, I wasn't going to be with a guy who felt like I was supposed to wait on him you know, et cetera. And then when she met Harry, she said that he was really apologetic and not really clear why he was late, but maybe just traffic. It was in the UK. So like London traffic, especially around the time they met in central London can genuinely be really, really bad, like really awful. And obviously Harry's not the type of person who can just get the tube or get a bus. Like he has to be driven places because security. So I get that. And what I really liked about their date was that they kept it short. They didn't have a super long first date, which I think can be a trap that women fall into when they go, especially those dates that take you to different places. So you have a meal, then you go for a walk, then you go to a bar. Like it can, as we've always said at FDS, that's not the best use of your time. And it can be used as a way to accelerate intimacy on the part of the man as well. So they kept this like an hour. And then I think they arranged to see each other again the next day for dinner. And again, they didn't, I don't think the date was that long. They didn't like go back to each other's houses or anything like that. Oh, I was going to say like, shout out to her girl gang though, as a complete side note for actually having her back and facilitating the meeting between uh, Megan and Harry, right? Because I feel like this is a, this is a great thing about if you cultivate a great group of friends, then it can actually help your dating life as well, uh, considerably. Yeah, definitely. But what was apparent was that they were almost coming at it from opposite ends, almost because obviously we get Megan saying, especially after her divorce, she was traveling around Europe. She wanted to be single. But then we have Harry, who for a number of years prior to meeting Megan, he was, he didn't really have anything to do. It became apparent that he wasn't the spare anymore in the eyes of the British royal family, because by that point, uh, William and Kate, who are now the Prince and Princess of Wales, they'd had George, you know, would have come after after William. So he was also being pushed further and further down the line of succession anyway. And it was during this time that he stepped up his charity work. But outside of that, they didn't really have a role for him. Because the thing is, when in the royal family, it's really about the heir, you know, which is William, and then the other remaining siblings or brothers, they end up being quite listless. The same happened to Princess Margaret as well. When Queen Elizabeth started having children and she was being pushed further and further down the line of succession, you then begin to see her becoming a bit of, you know, so-called like a wild child, like not really having a role anymore in the royal family. So this was happening to Harry. And I think at this point as well, because he even says like, I was, he'd had relationships with women in the past, most notably Chelsea Davy, who we had a six year, I think they date for about six years from about 2004 to 2010. And she left him because of the press intrusion. And so I think that Harry was aware of the fact that his position could mean that he ended up single because the press would basically just just harass the woman. He was scaring off every woman in the vicinity. <laughs> and that's literally what he said is that, is this going to happen every single time I try and date? Because obviously he hasn't got the, I guess, protection of like being the heir where as we'll get to in a minute, where the royal family, if something goes left in terms of 
you know, the relationship between Harry and his wife in the media, the royal family will quickly step in. They're not going to do that because he's not that important in their eyes. And so he was keen to settle down. And also Harry as well. He clearly and very publicly spoke about, you know, the void that his mother's uh, death, Princess Diana, had on him. And I think that was one of the qualities he was looking for when he was looking for a wife was basically his mom as well. Yeah, I, I thought it was very telling when they both discussed the fact that Harry had a list of qualities that he wanted in a wife. And then when the interviewer asked, like, what was on the list, Harry was like, look at Megan. Megan is the list, right? There was an intentionality in the way that he was dating. Yeah. And I can imagine a lot of that list consisted of qualities that he saw in his mom. And that's even what he said. Like, he draws parallels between Princess Diana and Meghan Markle all the time. Like, one of the things that attracted him to Meghan was uh, her charity work, which she was doing to her credit, like long before she was in the royal family. And she doesn't get enough credit for the fact that even before she was royal, she seemed to actually give a shit about other people. All of the other women who have married into the royal family, they only started doing charity work because that's what royals do. They weren't doing that before they became part of the family, you know, but she had always been doing it. And she was doing a good job of it as well. So, and even said that was one of the things that drew them together was their was their mutual interest in uh, charity work, particularly in Africa as well, which is why they went for their third date. Right. So that was the other point that I was going to discuss is that, again, kind of a yellow flag with some of the early behavior from Harry as far as like rushing the relationship, right? Because we've talked about this where, I don't know if I would call it like completely love bombing, because I don't think he was love bombing her with the intent of like, with a lot of love bombers, it's like they're trying to manipulate that person for a narcissistic supply. I think he was doing it because he was afraid she would leave <laughs> when she figured out the deal with being part of the royal family. You know what I mean? So in that case, that's why we sometimes say that them trying to rush a lot of these like deeply intimate dates, like going to Botswana and like sitting around in a tent uh, very early on in the relationship, especially since they were long distance can be kind of a, a yellow to red flag because of the fact that it usually means that there's something else that they're trying to get you hooked on for their own benefit, right? So I don't think he's narcissistic and abusive like a lot of the guys who love bomb are. I think that he's in a very specific circumstance that's kind of unfortunate for him, but it still doesn't mean that it's still like uh, following the rule that when a man tries to like rush the relationship and do like these like other locations and stuff that there's usually something that comes along with it that he's trying to compensate for. I mean, so yeah, so for their third date, Harry asks Megan, do you want to come to Botswana for... And then she flies out to go and see him and they spend some time in Botswana together. And I think it was there that they decided that they were going to start a relationship, a long distance one at that. And part of the issue with that is, obviously at the time, Megan was, I think, either in, was it in Canada or, or LA? And Harry was in the UK, so she was far away from the British press. They managed to keep their relationship under wraps for about a year. And so she never really had the chance to really see what she was getting into until she was deep into the relationship. Yeah, she was in Canada. Yeah, she was in Canada where she had her own house. She still had her freedom. She did get some press attention, but it, was, it wasn't anything like the attention that she got once it became known that she was dating Harry. And then Megan describes it as, you know, when the news eventually broke that her world became very, very small and insular. So obviously the press were camping out on her doorstep. She had to have all the blinds closed and Harry couldn't really do anything about it. And I think with Harry is that because this is the life that he's always known, he wouldn't know what it's like for somebody coming in from the outside, especially somebody who's had quite a lot of freedom from birth just how that would feel to then all of a sudden have your freedom restricted because the press is being highly intrusive. And so Harry couldn't really help her at that point, bearing in mind they were still long distance. And the relationship between Americans and the paparazzi is quite different from the royal family and the British paparazzi. So they did make a point that like Meghan was just being friendly with the paparazzi because that's generally what a lot of celebrities do here in the States. And the British press interpreted that of like, she's attention seeking, you know, she's narcissistic and wants to be in the spotlight, which is kind of totally different than I think people stateside would perceive that. Cause you know, with like TMZ, they just run up and put cameras in your face. 
you know, if you're just coming from the airport or something. And so generally people are expected, American celebrities are expected to be like cordial and nice to the paparazzi. Otherwise they'll treat them like they're rude and stuck up versus in the British press, I guess, Harry made the comment that they're expected to more or less like ignore the paparazzi. Uh, yeah, you just you just have to ignore them. You can't engage with them at any point. There were so many times where there's like faux pas between American culture and then British culture that the Brits seem to have read in like the worst interpretation possible. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, you see the stock images. There's a lot of images or archive footage of Diana being hounded by the press, of Kate being hounded by the press as well. And again, you know, yeah, their reaction is very, very different to Megan's initial reaction when she was like, hey guys, how you doing? Until Harry was like, ignore them, like don't talk to them. And then Megan was a bit like, well, okay, I'm just being polite. But, you know, like Rose said, you know, that then, you know, came to be interpreted as, you know, oh, she loves the attention, you know, she's entertaining them and stuff like that. So if we then skip to their engagement, because they got engaged, I think probably around a year or so after dating they kept under wraps for several weeks as is that's quite normal in the royal family where uh they announced the engagement several weeks after and this is where you know megan begun to be introduced to the uh pr of the royal family so their post-engagement interview that was given between megan and harry they basically said that was all staged so they had a script they had to keep to and it was basically staged and then we begin to see the, obviously, the interest in Meghan from the press, the British press begins to ramp up. And then we begin to see how, I suppose, like the narrative around Meghan's relationship with her family basically begun to play out. So in the documentary that one of that her nieces called Ashley, she says, um, so Ashley is the daughter of Meghan's half-sister, Samantha Markle. And it was around this time that Samantha Markle was doing the rounds on news channels, in papers, basically disparaging her sister, saying she's abandoned them, uh, basically saying quite a lot of you know really bad lies about Meghan. And in the documentary, Ashley was like, well, you know, Samantha's basically a liar. And she was so abusive that Ashley had to live with her grandmother. And even before that, two or three years ago, actually maybe four years ago, there was an interview done with her other daughter, Noelle, Samantha's other daughter, who said the exact same thing prior to this documentary that I was not raised by my mother, Samantha Markle. She was horribly abusive to us. And even Samantha Markle's own mother came out and said that she was a liar and abusive. So the fact that the British press kept using her as a source of information and also uh, Fox News, for that matter, like uh, Tucker Carlson just did. Yeah, they gave her so much airtime. Yeah, so much airtime. And Tucker Carlson did an interview with her yesterday after this documentary came out, after it's public knowledge that this woman's children did not even live with her because she was so abusive and that the entire family says she's a bald-faced liar. He still put her on television just to like tell lies about Meghan and then act like it was ridiculous that Meghan felt that the royal family and the media had done things that were racist, right? So Fox News is owned by Rupert Murdoch. And so all of the Rupert Murdoch-owned press is completely and totally committed to platforming anything that is going to be nasty and abusive towards Meghan. We'll get on to the royal family's relationship with the press in a bit, but like Harry, and he basically talks about it quite extensively in the documentary and basically says that there is almost like, because the general feeling by the British press is that towards the royal family is that, you know, we pay for you and you pose for us, basically saying that because you're publicly funded, you are basically public property and we should be able to, to photograph you and talk about you however we like. So some members of the royal family, what they do to, I guess, avoid the negative press and to keep the press at bay is that their private offices that contain the press office for each individual uh, member of the royal family. So for example, William and Kate will have a press officer, like Harry and Meghan will have a press officer, King Charles and Camilla will have a press officer. And they will all work independently. And so, you know, what happens is, you know, let's say the press officer for William and Kate will say, okay, so you're going to print this bad story about us, but I will give you this story about Harry and Meghan that you can print instead if you take out the bad story about us. And they basically have this quite toxic bargaining relationship with the press where they'll basically like throw each other under the bus 
just to make themselves look better. And if we look at the timeline of when the press really, really, really started to go for Meghan, it was around the time that there were rumours that William had cheated on Kate with one of her best friends. And it was around the time that Prince Andrew's dealings with Epstein were starting to get more media coverage because more and more victims were coming out. And so this is what Harry was saying was that, you know, this sort of, you know, bargaining exists. And actually, after the documentary aired, uh, several of the royal correspondents came out and said that a lot of the briefings that we received about Harry and Meghan that were negative came from Kensington Palace. Now, Kensington Palace is the office of Will and Kate. Unsurprising. I mean, I think the second half of the documentary all but points the finger at William without completely saying anything too explicit. Because I feel like because those are her in-laws, Meghan's in-laws, and then Harry's uh, blood family, that they're reluctant to completely eviscerate and throw them under the bus in the same manner in which they treat them with a lot more care than Will and Kate, uh, or at least William, treats Meghan and Harry as far as like what they're willing to do in the press. Yeah, exactly. So anyway, so back to the timeline. So as Harry and Meghan's, they get engaged, the, the engagement planning is going. And the palace see what Samantha Markle is doing, that she's going around basically bad-mouthing, you know, Meghan. And also her father. And her father as well. So her father was caught selling information and pictures to the press. So this is part of the reason why he wasn't there to walk her down the aisle and King Charles stepped in instead. So, but what was really quite shady of the royal PR firm was that their private secretary at the time, which they shared with Will and Kate because the households were conjoined at the time, that Jason, who we'll get to in a bit because he's done further scrutiny as well, he basically advised like Meghan to not invite any of her family to explain, you know, why uh, Samantha Markle wouldn't be invited because and they basically said it will look bad if you invite Ashley and Noel, who are your nieces, you know, so the best thing to do would be just to not invite anybody from your side of the family to the wedding. And obviously Meghan was devastated, but you know, she followed the advice. And it was around that time as well that the palace allowed the press to believe that Meghan had just cut off her family when that wasn't the case. They basically told her to do something. She did it and then didn't say anything when she got reviled for it in the press, which was really, really bad. Yeah, horrible. That's really, really shady. Like they didn't put out a statement to say, no, this is the situation or to say like, we stand by them. And the reason why she got all that stick was because she took their advice. And I felt especially bad watching the documentary for Samantha Markle's daughters because I felt so bad for Ashley because imagine like your mother is just publicly embarrassing you on an international stage, right? Like the mother that abused you at that, right? So poorly that other family members had to step in and take you out of that situation. It's like she's still continuing that type of public, like unhinged behavior. Like it's it's just, it's embarrassing. You could tell that like she was really triggered by the whole situation and to be then to be cut off by the one family member that she had grown close to because of her mother's behavior, as well as like just horrible politics of the royal family. I could feel like her emotional devastation in that moment. And it just felt, it felt bad to watch. I mean, so yeah, that was like really, really shitty. So then they get married, bells and whistles. And a lot of the, I guess, some of the anger towards Meghan in the UK comes from the fact from like, you know, well, if she doesn't like the UK, then why does she have that big wedding? And it's like, she couldn't have exactly had a private wedding, like, because Harry was saying that I'm Diana's boy, like, everybody wants to see me get married. Even if they'd wanted a private wedding, there's no way Prince Harry could have had an intimate private wedding. It had to be a big spectacle that, you know, the world was looking at. Do you know what I mean? It wasn't an option for them. And it's like, to be honest, like, why would you want a wedding where you've got thousands of people just staring at you? Like, and it's being broadcast around the world. Like, I think that most brides can be quite nervous and self-conscious on the day. So just imagine that, you know, you know that your wedding is going to be broadcast to like millions of people who, and let's face it, who are ultimately waiting for you to trip up so they can gossip, basically. So anyway, they get married and then they enter a sort of honeymoon period with the British press where, you know, Megan is seen as, as radical, as different. She's biracial. She's outspoken. She talks about a time when the Fab Four, as they were called, so, you know, Harry and Meghan, William and Kate, they went to this forum and, you know, Meghan was talking about the Me Too movement. And Meghan genuinely didn't know that the royal family don't speak about things like the Me Too movement. Exactly. Because probably because a lot of them are predators, but also, like, in the UK, the royal family just don't comment on politics at all. Like, 
that's partly to do with convention because even if they make a comment about anything, it can be seen as being politically partisan. So I was reading about Edward uh, VIII, who abdicated in 1936, I think. When he was king, he went on a tour of like the Welsh mines and he was so, you know, taken aback by the poverty and, and, you know, what he saw. He was like, he just said to himself, something has to be done about this. And his ministers interpreted that as he was going to get politically involved. And they got really nervous because it was like the monarch can't be seen to have any opinion on anything, like really. That's another, I think, American cultural nuance uh, that was just a misunderstanding between the two cultures, meaning in America versus in the British monarchy. And that like the entire charity and foundation is basically a farce for them to have like good PR and not to actually affect any type of meaningful change. Versus like Megan thinking it was actually uh, for its stated purpose, right? So like, you know what I mean? Like you could see how someone who didn't grow up in the UK would totally make that mistake and think like, oh, okay, this is the platform where I can choose an advocacy issue that's like near and dear to me. And I could talk about it publicly. Yeah. Prior to her even meeting Harry, she was talking about like racism. Like she did a campaign about that. She was talking about the Me Too movement, women's empowerment. And she spoke about Brexit as well, like on her blog, she said that Brexit was a bad idea. So that's what I'm saying. Like, that's another time where the the British press eviscerated her for something that I think Americans would, any American who was in that situation would have probably made that mistake if they were in any way politically minded, because our political leaders do make comments. Apart from maybe it'll be like a similar thing where the, a member of the Supreme Court comments on like, a policy that was passed because they're supposed to be at least outwardly impartial. Do you know what I mean? It wasn't that the press eviscerated her for it uh, because after she said that she was seen as different, that she's outspoken, she's a feminist, she's this, she's that. But it was probably within the royal family, you know, they were like, you can't say that. And it's not even like you have to give an opinion. So Edward VIII saying something must be done, that's not really an opinion, but he literally just said something and that was an issue. And they can't do that, at least not in public. So even when, you know, Scotland was having a referendum, someone asked Queen Elizabeth II about it. And all she could say was, I just hope the people of Scotland think very carefully about it. In private, she was probably hoping that Scotland wouldn't vote for independence, but she could never say that in public. So like, I'm looking at the Royal Foundation mission statement, and it quite literally says like, the Royal Foundation mobilizes leaders, businesses and people so that together we can address society's greatest challenges, right? Led by the Prince and Princess of Wales. So like, you know what I mean? Like, that's what they're saying they're about. It's quite wishy-washy, though, because they don't get involved in anything political, like anything to do with politics. They just don't comment on because it's just not convention for them to do that. It used to be. It says impact. Like they have an impact statement, right? Like, so, they, so they have all these things on the website. So it quite literally says on the Royal Foundation website. Impact. We focus on issues that matter to our principles and to society where the Royal Foundation can have a significant impact. So like they kind of try to put the image out there that they are trying to be involved in society's issues without actually being involved in society's issues. Yeah, exactly. But Meghan probably wasn't to know that and maybe Harry didn't tell her. But anyway, what's up, queens? This episode is brought to you by our sponsors, Athletic Greens. AG1 by Athletic Greens is a nutritional drink that you can drink every day for optimal health. I've been taking AG1 every morning after the gym mixed into a green smoothie. I like to mix it with some pineapple juice, a couple of ginger cubes, and a handful of spinach and some kale. One scoop of AG1 and you're absorbing 75 high-quality vitamins, minerals, superfoods, probiotics, and adaptogens to help you start your day right. AG1 is my daily microhabit that makes it easy to absorb key nutrients, lead a healthy lifestyle, and feel my best. And to make it easier for you to obtain better health, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com forward slash FDS. Again, that is athleticgreens.com forward slash FDS to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. One scoop, one minute, once a day, every day. AG1 by Athletic Greens. Now back to the show. So they have a bit of a honeymoon period, to be fair. The president wasn't always gunning for Megan, but then things change quite dramatically when Uh, Harry and Meghan go on their first uh, solo tour of Australia. And we sort of got hints of this when on her first solo engagement with the Queen to Cheshire, I'm surprised they didn't air this actually, but probably out of respect for Queen Elizabeth II, 
Uh, so Meghan uh, went with Queen Elizabeth II to Cheshire to do like a meet and greet and a walkabout, which is where they basically like greet members of the public. And the public absolutely loved Meghan to the point where somebody was like to Queen Elizabeth, oh, can you give these flowers to Meghan? And I remember seeing the Queen awkwardly just gesturing her lady in waiting saying, take the flowers. Like, can you imagine like asking the Queen of England, can you pass these flowers to like a junior royal? And I was like, "Uh uh-oh. So then Harry and Meghan go to Australia and that tour was an overwhelming success for them. Like they were so, so popular, so well-loved. And, you know, they were so, so well-received. And, you know, William and Kate, they had never received such a reception anywhere they went. And this is when I think the royal family started to panic and think, wait, hang on a minute, we could have... I'm not going to say that Meghan is like Diana, but that similar dynamic where the royal family weren't expecting Diana to be more popular than Charles, to the point where when people are meeting Charles, the first thing they'd say was, oh, where's your wife? And look visibly like disappointed when <laughs> she wasn't there. And if you can't see the misogyny in that... I don't know what to say, right? They are so threatened by a woman having any type of political influence, right? And even if it's like positive. Or independent pull, like this is why like in pictures of Charles and Diana, because they were the same height. Diana was quite a tall woman. I mean, but they took the picture so that Diana would look shorter than Charles, but they were the same height. It's petty stuff like that. And even Diana said like, once I became more popular, people within the royal family started getting jealous because, you know, when the person who was meant to be the spotlight, Charles as Prince of Wales, or William and Kate, who were the next Prince and Princess of Wales, you know, when they're being upstaged by junior royals, they don't like that. If you look at the way, you know, Kate's image is managed as well, you see that they've basically managed her down to the point where, you know, she couldn't possibly ever upstage William. And I remember seeing an article, you know, where, because like Kate likes to run, like she's an avid runner, she's really active. And she went on a public appearance with William where they had to basically run like a hundred meters. And, you know, Kate is an experienced runner and you could see Kate in this video. She was deliberately like, you know, being slow just to not make William look bad. (laughs) And she was just running like she didn't know how to run, but she's almost like a seasoned runner. She runs all the time they basically managed Kate down to not upstage William in the way that Diana upstaged Charles. I mean, Harry was always quite a popular member of the royal family in the sense that he was the one that was seen as the most relatable. Obviously, I think in part because of his wild child stage where he was caught doing coke or saying racist stuff or, you know, doing strip poker. Or donning a Nazi uniform. I mean, but the thing is with that is that, you know, one thing that I will give like Harry massive credit for is that he's the only member of the royal family who held his hands up and said, yeah, that was shit. And he actually went to South Africa to do better, to understand it, you know, racism better. And the press never reported that. They never said that he spent a lot of time in South Africa, you know, meeting black people, just trying to be better. Like he's the only member of the royal family who's done that. And even more so, I think what came across to me in the documentary is that the time he spent enlisted actually really affected him and that he actually found genuine brotherhood and family and camaraderie in his fellow soldiers. Because he was in the military for like 10 years, right? So having that much exposure and like an arm-to-arm exposure with regular people probably opened his eyes to a lot of the way that society operates outside of the royal family, how the royal family is viewed. And then like the struggles of regular people in a way that I don't think the rest of the royals would have ever been exposed to. So it's very clear that like he did the work, right? He clearly knows he screwed the pooch. <laughs> with I mean, I don't even know what to say. Like there's just objectively awful and completely fucked up to like be wearing a Nazi uniform, especially as a part of the, the monarchy. But, you know, that was probably like his teenage edgelord phase. And him as a 30 plus year old man now is like, actually, how old is he? Is he in his 40s? No, he's younger than Megan, right? So he's like in his... He must be late 30s. He's late 30s. Yeah, he's in his late 30s. So like him now, as an adult, like trying to work on his own self-awareness and work on himself, that was very clear throughout the documentary, which I was actually surprised at because I don't know what I thought about Harry before, but I thought he was a little dumb. And I don't mean that like in a mean way. I just thought he was just like not, like a person who is... I thought he'd be <laughs> a lot more ignorant than he came across. He seemed to understand that you know, yeah, I didn't get this racism thing before, but I'm doing the work now to try and get it. And the fact that he was basically willing to cut off his family because of the racist treatment that his wife is receiving, I think that 
you know, that act itself is quite high value to take a stand against your family, especially a family like the Windsors, who are very, very powerful. Because like, not many people, a lot of people can't even cut off a friend who they know, like, holds racist views. They'll just say, like, okay, we'll just not talk about that because I don't want to hear it because hearing that you're racist makes me feel uncomfortable, but I don't want to cut you off. Do you know what I mean? I think he's also keenly aware of the optics in a way that the royal family is not because he's been around regular people that he now sees this shift in public consciousness and that you can't keep doing things the old way when like the pre-internet age and the pre-like global consciousness age where people are interconnected from different countries. And you're starting to see the like the anti-commonwealth sentiment bubble up, but that was probably always there. And Harry is aware of it. So I'm not even sure it's like, so I give him credit for protecting his wife, uh, trying to combat, you know, the racist text against her as well as like talking about aspects of systemic racism. But I also think he saw where the wind was blowing in a way that the institution does not. And so he's trying to get ahead of it politically. And that's why he also thought like, oh, Megan could be an asset to the royal family because first of all, like she's a person of color, quote, you know, like she's a mixed race person, even though she's very white passing And so a lot of people felt like, okay, this represents a change in the direction of how the monarchy has traditionally presented itself when dealing with most of the Commonwealth, which is uh, people of color. But so I feel like Harry is the only person who gets that in that family versus like everyone else, because they've lived very insular lives, has not like grasped that yet. And that's why they're like failing in popularity. And I'm sure that maybe women who've married into it, like Diana seemed to understand it. Obviously, she was a white woman, but she seemed to understand the need to give a genuine shit about people who didn't look like you. I'm not sure if Kate and Fergie would, but you know, maybe they've been muzzled as well. I don't know. But this is where I think the sympathy for Meghan and Harry, at least in the UK, begins to drop off a bit. Purely because what they're asking for, you know, because Harry was saying, as Rose said, that, oh, Meghan will be a great ambassador for the Commonwealth, so people look like her. And I was like, firstly, you know, most people in the Commonwealth don't look like Meghan. They're a lot darker skinned. But secondly, it's like, ultimately, we are talking about racism in the context of an institution that built its wealth on racism. And whether Harry and Meghan like to admit it or not, being part of that family means that they have benefited from said racism. And I really agreed with Ash Sarkar's comments on this in that there is no way to make the royal family an equal institution when it is built on inequality. This whole idea that there is an heir and a spare, you know, that's what keeps the royal family going. The idea that some people are better than others, you know, that is the bedrock of the royal family. So I understand what Harry and Meghan are asking for in the sense that they wanted the racism and the inequality to stop, but equality is not compatible with a monarchy. It just can't be. So this is like my perception as an American. We're not part of the Commonwealth. A lot of our institutions in America were quite literally built on slavery, colonialism, genocide, right? And so how we've reconciled that as Americans is like generally focusing on the idea that we believe in the overarching principles of creating a more perfect union through uh, sticking to the idea of uh, personal freedom, freedom of speech, etc. Like all of the things that are guaranteed to us in our Bill of Rights, and then by the 13th, 14th, 15th, all the way up to the 19th Amendment, which granted more rights under um, our citizenship laws. So I think in the eyes of most Americans, we've grappled with and live with the fact that our country in a lot of ways has a very terrible history, but that you can still reform it such that it can work for the people in it. So I would not be surprised if that was like, once again, for people who lived outside of the British monarchy might have that perception, like, is there a way to modernize the institutions, even though it has a really horrible past, such that it works for the people who are inhabited? Because you can't really go back and like undo colonialism. The question is like, what do you do from here? And it seems like for most of the Commonwealth, it's like, well, fuck, fuck being part of the... uh, (laughs) being part of the commonwealth which is a totally like a totally legitimate response but all i'm saying is like from the perspective of someone like megan who comes from the united states once again i'm just i'm just defending her from the british press attacks because i feel like some of it is like just ignorance on her part that like you could go into an institution and modernize it so that it worked for the people that were within it because that's kind of how we operate in the united states right i see yeah so 
that's another cultural difference is that like that's how we end up with a black president like despite the fact that we're a slave nation far after most nations had abolished slavery so yeah (laughs) but i mean that's also a testament to your democratic system right is that you can vote in your head of state for the most part right you can't vote in a monarchy and this is why they're allowed to have conventions and traditions that are from the prehistoric ages that are still upheld to this day right so a lot of people don't realize this for example so kate is now princess of wales she is the highest ranking female in the united kingdom after queen camilla i think in the order of like the precedence so she comes after queen camilla in the formal situations as long as william is there so if william isn't there she is seen as of a lower rank than than Princess uh, Beatrice and Princess Eugenie, who are Andrew's uh, daughters, purely because she wasn't born into the royal family. Especially for a female who marries into the royal family, that's how your rank can shift, depending on if your husband is there or not, which is quite an archaic like rule, anyway. Yeah, there's so many rules here that like I know for a fact the average American has no clue about. <laughs> so it's kind of tough because... Yeah, the curtsying, yeah. Not even just the curtsying, but like, there's so many of these like little rules that you're saying and cultural nuances that this is where I'm saying where Harry should have either stepped in to teach her or like prepare her for that reality. And the fact that she was making all these faux pas and then like constantly being attacked for it. I can see how that can eventually like affect someone's mental health if like every move you make and you're trying your damnedest to try to fit in is being constantly attack and whose fault is that right it's to me i point both fingers at harry and like you brought in an american bride and you need to defend your american bride i even said this in in episodes past when you marry cross-culturally a lot of times it's on your husband to defend you from attacks from that family that's going to act like your wife is not good enough right because you're not part of their culture i said that in like the sk and raven situation where like i don't like where a guy takes wants to be with a woman who's not from his culture and then allows everyone from his culture to attack that woman for not being, quote, enough. To be fair, though, like, Harry did begin, even before they got married, he started with the statements, calling out the racism, telling them to back off. He started it to try and stick up for her. But the problem is that the palace just didn't back him at all on that. And they were actively part of the briefings against Harry and Meghan. So we then, after the Australia tour, we see a shift and then we start to see the narrative about Meghan changing. So she's Duchess difficult. She's a diva. She's demanding. You know, Harry's her lapdog. So I heard that that moniker was given to her because she would send emails like really early in the morning. And that's, again, very normal for Americans. It doesn't mean you're like obligated to answer outside of working hours unless you work for a company where you are obligated to answer outside of working hours. But people in the monarchy, it seems like took that as like, she expects people to be up at 5 a.m. catering to her every whim, you know? <laughs> but also, it's like, do you not think that other members of the royal family are just as demanding? Like, why the focus on Meghan? There's Prince Andrew's protection officers have come out and said, or his former protection officers have said, he would sneak in, you know, younger women in their 20s, and he would be horribly abusive to his staff as well. Like, that he would greet them, you know, they'd say hi, he'd tell them to fuck off he'd be verbally really abusive. There's Charles, who was so fucking lazy, he dropped a piece of paper in the bin that was next to him, and he called a butler from the other side of the palace to come and get the piece of paper out of the bin. There was that video that was circulating on Twitter where he uh, was really mad at his assistant for not clearing his desk and like not moving the pen and inkwell like three inches to the right. <laughs> like... <laughs> So that's what, like, the royal family males are like, but they're lambasting the women. But yeah, like, aggressively gesturing. Like, looking back with the media hit, I don't even know if Meghan was a difficult bot. I've no idea if that's even true. I just want to put a big question mark around that, because even if it was true, who is leaking that information, right? Because if you apply to be a member of the royal staff, you usually sign an NDA, non-disclosure agreement. So... The source must have come from inside the house. And it's like, why would they be leaking that only about Meghan when I'm sure she's not the only demanding member of the royal family? And you don't hear anything about William and Kate, Charles and all these other demanding, like probably equally, if not more so demanding people. Yeah, agreed. And yeah, like I said, it's not even clear that she was what happened. But I'm saying of the reports that are coming out, some of the things that they were saying was evidence of her diva behavior. It's just very common practice in the U.S., 
you know, so that's why I'm just saying that it could be cultural misunderstanding if it is probably a little bit of that. And then William stoking the flames to make it worse in the press. Yeah. So then in the second half of the series, we begin to see just how fucked up the relationship between the royal family and the press actually is. And Harry, you know, comes out and says that that basically a lot of the negative press around Meghan, it came from the palace. Uh, they were actively feeding, basically feeding Meghan to the wolves in order to distract from their own, you know, terrible behaviour. And William was at the centre of that. Or his private officers was at the centre of that. I think that Harry was quite careful to say this was William because he was like my brother's office. But the thing is, is that there's no way William couldn't have known what his office was doing. There's just no way. And even if he wasn't aware, like when he saw the negative press about Meghan, again, like none of them said anything about it. Like none of them defended her. And what's equally ironic is that William and Kate talk a lot about mental health in the UK, but their sister-in-law's mental health was quite, you know, visibly declining and they said nothing. And so the manipulation, it comes almost to a head where Harry and William release a joint statement, joint in quotation marks, basically saying that there's no fighting, there's no racism, you know, everything is fine. And then Harry basically says, but I never saw the statement. They just put my name on it and I knew nothing about it. And furthermore, leaks their plans to depart from the monarchy, which he said wasn't even finalized and was just like a bunch of suggested roles that they could play. And then either Prince Charles or Prince William leaked that to the press pretty deliberately, like force their hand and make it seem like, oh, they're going to depart for sure. And so then like they were forced into a corner after telling Meghan to put it in writing, by the way, after she said she just wanted to discuss it. So that was very clearly a deliberate manipulation on Prince Charles's part to put something in writing to then have that go out to the press to eat them alive. To have it as source material, yeah. And so Harry then, you know, there's this meeting between Queen Elizabeth, Charles and William and Harry about the proposed Megxit. And, you know, what Harry and, you know, Meghan originally wanted was that they still wanted to promote the Queen and the Commonwealth around the country, just not in the UK because of the press. And... He thought that option was on the table, but when he got there, he quickly realised that the outcome had been decided and that it was either they were all in and they had to stay in the UK or they should leave entirely. And then, like, William just starts screaming at Harry. The Queen doesn't say anything. Charles doesn't really say anything. And actually, Charles was chatting shit and telling lies um, in that meeting, according to Harry. And this was when Harry realised they just have no option. And what I think was quite callous about the royal family's reaction was that they stripped Harry and Meghan of the protection uh, three weeks before they were due to leave. And I think they did that to try and get them to stay. Oh, for sure. Because they hoped that Harry would say, oh shit, we're not going to have protection. So we might as well stay here because we'll have protection here. It was just a completely like abusive tactic to get them to stay in an environment that was very hostile to them. And in an environment where the royal family weren't willing to help them out. So this is where Tyler Perry <laughs> comes in, comes like a knight in, in like shining armor and offers them his house in LA. Extra random, by the way, because like, we were all like Tyler Perry of all people, but he has a compound. He has like a large security gated compound. So I guess he did have the capacity to take them into a place that would be protective of them. But it is sort of random because they didn't know each other. Yeah, no, like he sent Megan a letter before her wedding, basically saying, I'm praying for you that it works out. And then the first time like Megan and Tyler spoke on the phone was two years later when she basically had a breakdown and was saying basically how difficult it was. And then he was like, how can I help you? So he offered them his compound with security for like three months to let them settle in the US. And that was, that was what they did. But yeah, yeah, Tyler Perry did them a solid on that one. Uh, so yeah, they moved to the US. And we then see, you know, footage of Harry and Meghan settling in. We hear from her mum. And then it comes out that Meghan wants to sue the Daily Mail and by extension their parent company for publishing a private letter that she wrote to her dad. Basically a letter that she wrote, again, on the advice of the palace PR firm uh, that the Royal Mail had then published. And what was really quite damning, you know, for William especially, was that 
it came out that Jason, who is currently, I think he's a CEO or chair of of like one of, you know, William and Kate's like main foundations, I think it's called Earthshot Foundation. And at the time, uh, William and Kate's press officer, uh, Jason, he basically released a statement in support of the Daily Mail. So you have, you know, somebody who is intimately connected to William and Kate, basically releasing a statement that nobody asked him for in support of the Daily Mail, like knowing that Meghan was suing them. So they're they're just trying to sabotage Harry and Meghan at every opportunity. Yeah, basically. I know there's a lot of literature out there about dynamics and narcissistic families, but by birthright, you know, William is the golden child and then Harry is like the perpetual scapegoat. You can just kind of see like he's just used to being able to abuse his brother at will, right? <laughs> well, yeah, because the firm will back him. If there was a rife between, you know, William and Harry, and I think, you know, Harry grew up knowing this, they will always side with William. It's like a non-starter. So it's, it's just odd because, I mean, we talk about these dynamics as like horribly toxic and unhealthy and having, you know, near crushing effects on the scapegoat's mental health when they're constantly being uh, the target of familial abuse because of them not being whatever the golden child standard is set. And so like just seeing that play out in this family, like on an international stage, and then it's just kind of wild. Like, I don't know, understand how like people don't have as much sympathy. I know they're like, they're royals and they're rich and they have a lot of connections and wealth, but just like from a, a human standpoint. <laughs> yeah, it's not nice to constantly know that you're second fiddle. And then like, not only that, that the media that arguably caused your mother's tragic death, and even if she hadn't died, they were certainly causing her to be suicidal and have bulimia. And he witnessed his entire life the abuse of his mother by the press to the point where she was bulimic and suicidal. Finally, this kid grows up, starts to like do the self-work on his own mental health, um, and then also like a more social awareness, finds a wife, despite all of the uh, nastiness from the press that he knew was going to come her direction and scare most women away, and then have them try those same attacks on her, trying to bully her to the point of suicide, in which Megan said that she was frequently suicidal while in the house because of like how restrictive everything was, not being able to talk to people without you know everything being very controlled. And she was not able to see a mental health representative because they didn't want that out in the press. And she's probably suffering from postpartum because she just had a baby. <laughs> so to have all that happen... And then like, you know, he's in the position now to maybe right some wrongs. Like, like I almost like feel for him, you know, like I feel a sense of sympathy because I get like, yeah, he's finally trying to stand up against the abuse that's been happening to him his whole life and which arguably killed his mother. And then now his brother's like re-perpetuating that cycle against his wife. Like that's a huge betrayal. You know what I mean? And that's what Harry said was that it wasn't even the press that was the worst part. It's just the fact that that William was either behind it or knew of it and did nothing especially knowing you know what diana went through and he's basically doing the same bullshit against harry and his family that's what he said is the most painful part and it would be painful like and especially like william and harry growing up even when they were young men like they were so so tight you could tell they were really really close and i'm guessing that that losing their mum in such a way probably brought them a lot closer and even up until I think about 2015, like Harry, you know, William and Kate, they were like a threesome, like they shared a household and they were really, really close. And it is really, really sad just to see just the distance between them now, the distance that just seems to be getting bigger and bigger, because I don't see William ever admitting that what he did was just totally fucked up. The palace don't issue apologies like that. Even Diana, they've not really apologized for how they treated her. I know. That's what's so wild about it is like how now she's deified because she died, but they can't see the same cycle of abuse that they're perpetuating on the women of that family. Uh, so yeah, I think this episode is going to be a two-parter episode purely because we have a lot more to get through, especially in terms of the misogyny and the racism, both from the press and from individuals, particularly on social media, who are still going in on Megan. But that will definitely be a topic for another day because unfortunately, Megan is not the only victim of this. It's happened earlier this year to Amber Heard. It's happening to Megan the Stallion. It's just, I think there isn't anything that unites MRAs and so-called feminists more, you know, than a social media witch hunt against another woman. And that is just really sad. 
And I don't know what to call these women. I know everybody gets mad when I call them femcells, but let's come up with a term for these, like the basically the Deptford wife demographic or like the women that still defend R. Kelly. Or Johnny Depp. Johnny Depp. Yeah. Yeah. The Deptford wives. Like, and the odd thing about it is like so often they're like, they're definitely outside the demographic of women that the man that they're defending with their life would be, even be interested in. But like they are the flying monkeys of the patriarchy. And it's ironic when it is feminist. A lot of these women, I don't know if they identify as feminists or not. A lot of them are just like, some of them are just conservatives because I know there's a lot of conservatives that were seething about like uh, Megan allegedly complaining and she's got so much privilege, et cetera. And like they were totally jealous that she got to marry a prince and they didn't. I mean, but I thought conservatives in the US would be like anti-monarchy. Like they're all about the constitution and democracy and shit. Okay, it doesn't have to make sense as long as it's misogynist. That is basically what it comes to. And then, and then Fox News, like I said, is Rupert Murdoch owned. So if you understand like the Rupert Murdoch press has a narrative and that's like the Sun, Fox News, et cetera, and they're going to push that narrative whether or not it makes sense. They hate any woman that stands up to any type of patriarchal authority more so than they love America. And like this is my rant about conservatives because like because we've now seen a couple of times where they turn coat on Americans in a way that's like cannot be explained by anything other than certain aspects of misogyny and racism. Right. Like when they were suddenly defending Russia because of like Donald Trump's involvement and like the Russians hate our fucking guts. They are not like (laughs) defending Russia because Donald Trump has ties to Russia is the most insane shit I've ever heard in my life. But like there was a narrative that was going in conservative media with that. And this is another situation where I'm like defending the monarchy as an American is the craziest shit I've ever heard in my life. But again, you can explain it because of racism and misogyny. Like, they're just going to take the narrative that supports the patriarchy. That's it. But yeah, I I mean, I definitely want to talk about that because I don't think it's actually spoken about anywhere near enough that the damage that these groups of women can do to the women they're targeting and also indirectly to other women as well. So yeah, that will be in part two of this episode, you know, where we'll go into that. Yes. So... Stay tuned for further discussion. That's our show. Check us out on the website, thefemaledatingstrategy.com, as well as our Patreon, patreon.com forward slash thefemaledatingstrategy, where you can get weekly bonus content and submit a roast to scrow and talk to us about this episode on our Discord and do our twice a month war room. Also check us out on Twitter at femdatstrat and on our Instagram at underscore thefemaledatingstrategy. Thanks for listening, queens. And for all you royalists out there, get a democracy. Die mad. Die mad. (laughs) (laughs) Ha <laughs> <laughs>